Take your Bible, join me in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. You know, one of the things that distinguishes us, and I'm reminding you, and I'm saying this for the benefit of those who are visiting with us today. One of the things that distinguishes us is not only has the blood of Jesus Christ saved us, ransomed us, transformed us, but it has united us into one family. We belong to the family of God, and as a family, we function as family. We get to experience life together. We grow together. We support each other. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul said, I'm an apostle. I could have exercised my authority. I didn't. I was like a nursing mother to you, tenderly caring for her children. And our theme this year, and I'm reminding you of it, Paul said, I, I was well pleased. Literally, I found great delight in sharing with you not only the gospel of God, but my own life as well. Why? Because you were very dear to us. Paul was communicating what's true, and that is there is a family connection. There is a relational commitment that we share. And part of what we enjoy here is the benefit of family. Professors and leaders and investors who are not only interested in communicating truth to you and training you and equipping you for the station and place you will play in life, but to share their life with you as well. That's what distinguishes us. We are not just a Christian college. We are a Christian family. We're from the top of the administration all the way into your classroom and dorm rooms. There are men and women who are investors because they want to. And that's the joy we share. And that's the mindset that I come to Mark chapter 6 with today as a part of your family. Let's read together Mark chapter 6. I'm coming back to a text. The very first message I preached to you this fall was out of this passage. This is part 2. I never get to preach part 2. But the good news is with this opportunity I get to do that and I want to unpack some things that I don't often get to share lessons about life, essential lessons for disciples who would follow Jesus Christ, be used by Jesus Christ, defining lessons, life-on-life lessons. This is Mark chapter 6. The disciples have been chosen in Mark 3. In Mark 4, they have heard words they'd never heard before, descriptions of the kingdom, like a sower and seed and the power of God at work in the world and the unique ways that God is building and advancing his kingdom, the values of the kingdom. Chapter 4, they've, they've heard Jesus awakened abruptly in the back of the boat, stand up and say, peace be still, and everything got quiet. What kind of man is this? Chapter 5, they've been exposed to the supernatural capacity of Jesus Christ to deliver someone spiritually oppressed. 
the demoniac in the land of the Gadarenes, out there unable to be managed, tormented, harassing, terrorizing. And they find him seated and clothed in his right mind. What kind of man is this? And then in chapter 5, you have an official's daughter, 12 years old, who's sick. He's bereaved and concerned and comes to Jesus and makes an appeal. Please come, deal, help me. On his way, a woman who'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years, had spent much money and much time with many physicians without help, had, had actually gotten worse. She touched the hem of his garment, and in a moment she was made well. What kind of man is this? And then he finally arrives, and the daughter is dead, and he goes into the inner room with three of his chosen disciples, and he raises a little girl from the dead. He amazes everybody. What kind of man is this? And then in chapter 6, Mark's gospel, after teaching in Nazareth and sending and commissioning his disciples out into ministry, their first missionary effort, they come back to report. They're tired. It's late. It's really a time when they're supposed to be resting, a retreat, if you will, a time of recovery. And people gather. They find out where Jesus is. And very common, they come. And he does what he does, tired or not. He heals. He touches. And then he provides. Hey, where are we going to buy food for this crowd? It's very late. There's, if we had 200 denarii, if we had 200 days' wages, we couldn't feed this crowd. Well, what do you have? We have five loaves and two fishes. Bring to me what you have. Watch me do what I do. And so Jesus, in this training season, this undeniable revelation of his capacity, a sign is what John chapter 6 says, a visible, validating evidence that this is not just a man. He feeds 5,000 women and children added on, maybe up to 20,000 food left over. What kind of man is this? Mark chapter 6, verse 45. And immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the multitude away, and after bidding them farewell, he departed to the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land, and seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night. He came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him, and they were frightened. But immediately he spoke with them, and he said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. The wind stopped. And they were greatly astonished. Verse 52. For the ground or reason for this whole event 
the defining commentary as to why this happened. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Their heart was porous, not porous like we normally think of something that has holes in it, but something hard, something callous, something petrified. Their heart hadn't learned, despite all of the abounding evidence, the essential lesson that every disciple who God will use for his glory, an essential lesson for them and an essential lesson for you, you must know, non-negotiably, unequivocally, I am not an ordinary man. I am God, very God. I can do what God does. I am that I am. Despite all of the things that should have borne witness to the reality of his divinity, his unique and divine capacity, they hadn't gotten it which implies to me that it may be hard to get. Because you would think, based on what they had seen, they would have known. But verse 52 says they hadn't gotten it. Not even the latest expression and evidence of it. They didn't understand it. Their heart was calloused. It was petrified. It, they were hard-headed. They were hard-hearted. They were boneheaded. They were unable because they did not understand what they needed to understand essentially about who they were walking with, who they were serving. Hence, the walking on the water. Hence, you get into the boat, you go to the other side. I'm going to rest a while in refreshing communion with the Father. And he comes walking, intending to pass by them. And what I shared with you back in the fall, heart to heart, was this essential lesson, this revelation about Jesus Christ that you have to have. Because you're going to go through hard times and hard nights. You're going to have seasons where you're rowing for all you're worth. You're not going anywhere. And you'll be inclined and tempted to quit. And you need to know this. You need to know that the one you serve is God, very God, who is sovereignly working in your world and in your life divinely and purposefully to reveal himself to you as God. Not just as God who can, remember God is the only one who can walk on the water. Job chapter 9 says, you alone tread the waves of the ocean. You alone move the mountains. You alone can walk on water. Only God. And then this self-descriptor here, Jesus says, it is I, ego and me. I am. You've heard that before. Moses asking God, who do I tell them sent me? Tell them I am that I am sent you. So Jesus identifies his, himself as the great I am. It is I, I am He's walking on the water, what he does, what he says, identifies himself as God, very God. And I want you to know, gentlemen, disciples of mine, I am not just a man. I'm not just a unique and unrivaled teacher. I am God. 
and I'm the God who sees even in the middle of the night. I'm the God who cares when you're straining at the oars. I'm the God who comes. I'm the God who rescues and comforts with my felt presence and my divine capacity. What I tried to share with you heart to heart is the God you know, the Savior you serve, is unlike any other. He sees you right where you are. It's never too dark. He always cares, and he always comes in his time and in his way, and he rescues those he loves. It may be in the middle of the night. It may be after a hard, hard pull. But you are not alone. You have an advocate, the high priest, who is God. Can you say amen to that? All right, now I want to shift gears. That's where we were. What I'd like to share with you is not lessons about him, but lessons about them. I want to share with you lessons that I believe you need to extract from this unique section of Scripture that will help you when you're in the crucible. You know that heated, hot, refining place. This was a defining season, and there will be times in your life that are markedly unique. Times when it's really hard that'll define you for the rest of your life. This was that season for these men. And these are some lessons that I think disciples need to learn in the midst of that, as if Jesus were here with us today saying, hey, get this. Lesson number one. When you obey, it is not always easy. Discipleship lesson number one, life to life. When you obey, it is not always easy. Here's the encouragement. Don't quit. You see, I think there's a perspective we need to combat in our human propensity, and that is this. We tend to think that if it's hard, if it's really hard, we're out of God's will. There's too much resistance. I must be on the wrong path. We tend to think that if we obey, if we do what God wants us to do, our life will be easy. That obeying God guarantees smooth sailing and effortless advance. And we tend to believe that if it's hard and no progress is evident or success eminent, we are not in God's will. We're out of step with his plan. We are not tuned into his intention. And we want to quit. We want to give up. We want to stop rowing. I think the first lesson Jesus would have us learn as it relates to us is our propensity to quit. And I think he would want you to know and hear you understand with conviction that to obey is not always easy. Question, were the disciples in God's will or not? Answer, yes. Did he direct them to get into the boat and command them to go to the other side? What does it say? Verse 45, emphatically, he himself made his disciples get into the boat. It was his will. He had commanded them. And he confirmed that commandment 
when it says at the end of verse, or at the beginning of verse 46, and after bidding them farewell, which is a way of saying, he said goodbye, not, hey, where are you guys going? He's confirming what he had commanded. He bid them farewell. You're doing what I wanted you to do. Here's a truth. They were exactly where they were supposed to be. He had, he had commanded them. He had confirmed by saying goodbye to them. Remember this. They're going to row all night long. They're going to row for all they're worth, and they're going to feel like they're going nowhere, and yet they're exactly where God wanted them to be. And sometimes you're going to do what God has commanded you to do, declared for you what He wants for His will in your life. You're going to enter into that, and it's going to be hard. It's going to be harder than you thought it should be, could be, and you're going to feel like, I'm on, I'm on the wrong road. I'm in the wrong place. I'm in the wrong boat. Did God say it? Did God confirm it? Stay with it. Keep rowing. Don't quit. Did Jesus face resistance when he obeyed the Father? Sure he did. Pharisaical leaders, adversaries, family members, you're insane, we need to come home. Even his disciples you could say to Peter, get behind me. You're not about the will of God. You're resisting the will of God. You're, you're blocking my way. Don't go, don't go, don't go to Jerusalem. Hey, I must go to Jerusalem. How about Paul? Did he face resistance in obeying? Sure he did. Turn to Acts chapter 21. Let me make this statement I love to make. I hope you hear it life to life, me to you. I've been a pastor a long time, coached lots of folks. I've come to believe this, and I offer it to you today, and I think it's absolutely critical that you embrace this truth. You measure decisions by how you make them, not by their results. A Christian needs to learn to make, measure their decisions by how they make those decisions. Because you never know what God's going to do. Acts chapter 21 is Paul convinced by God that he's to go to Jerusalem to represent the gospel of God. And some heavyweights confront him. Verse 8, and on the next day Paul said we entered, this is Acts 21.8. On the next day we departed, we came to Caesarea. And entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. And when it says one of the seven, it's referring to Acts 6, when there was a question about distributing to the needs of the Hellenistic Jewish widows, and they needed men they could trust, and they chose men of high regard, great reputation, full of faith, honorable men, powerful, integrous, influential. Philip, he was one of those. And he was not only one of those, he was an evangelist. He had a reputation as a truth-teller and a gospel proclaimer. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. 
So we got Philip the evangelist, one of the seven, Agabus, a known prophet, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands, or his own feet and hands, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit said. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Verse 12, watch this. And when we had heard this, Agabus declaring the end game for Paul, bad news, you're going to be, you're going to be bound. Philip, one of the seven. Luke, the traveling companion. And when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Don't go, don't go, don't go. Turbulence ahead. Verse 13, Paul answered and said, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Now, let me explain to you what just happened. A man with a conviction, a man who felt commanded by God to represent God to Jerusalem, having been confirmed by God that he was to represent him, set his face to go to Jerusalem, and some powerful representatives of God tried to dissuade him because it was going to be hard. Now they were right, he was bound. But what was not right is because he was to be bound, because it was to be hard, he wasn't supposed to go. Because God's will is not defined by whether it's hard, whether it plays out and whether it works out, whether it's easy, whether the journey's prosperous, whether you're on the stage of victory. That's not what defined God's will, God's command, God's call, God's confirming that call, even if it's hard. Because when you obey, it's not always easy. And it doesn't always play out in the ways that you would think. But keep rowing, keep trusting, keep believing, even though you're inclined to quitting. Look back at Philippians chapter 1. He goes to Jerusalem, he's incarcerated two years, then he's shipped to Rome. He's now under house arrest by the Romans, having appealed to Caesar. Some of the skeptics, some of the cynics are looking at Paul's life as a disciple and they're saying, he's out of God's will, he's out of God's will, he's not to be trusted. Listen to what Paul says. Yeah, it's been difficult. Yes, I'm under house arrest. Verse 12, chapter 1, Philippians. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Let me tell you what he just said. I went to Jerusalem. 
the consequences were heavy and the way has been hard. I am bound. But listen to what this has resulted in. Everyone who serves Caesar in the Roman palace, the Praetorian Guard, the emperor makers, the people of the greatest influence, the people in the greatest stations of power, besides Caesar himself, every single one of them have heard, the whole household has heard the gospel of God. And beside that, All of the brothers in this city, Rome, who have become aware of my reality, have been encouraged to proclaim the gospel as well without fear because God has shown himself faithful despite my difficulty. Here's a life lesson. You measure decisions by how you make them. You never know what the result will be. It may be temporarily hard. The results may be unknown. Or at the end of it, you may get to see and say what Paul got to see and say. God has used it. And I'm going to argue God will use it. He used it in the lives of these disciples. This all night long rowing experience turned into the one of the most defining moments of their life which leads me to the second lesson the second lesson is hard places have high purpose hard places have high purpose when it's hard It is meant to refine you and reveal him. It is meant to refine you and reveal him. The tone and flow of this passage reveals Jesus had a plan and a purpose. His command to depart and his intention to pass by them was both a training exercise and a foundational life lesson. We went over this. His passing by was not like he was playing a game. He was revealing his glory like he did to Moses when Moses was discouraged. He passed by. When Elijah was discouraged and wanted to quit and die, he passed by. He recommissioned two men by revealing his glory. When you're in hard places, when you want to quit and stop place, God wants to refine you by revealing himself. There's some things you only learn in difficulty. That's James 1. Hupameno, you learn to persevere. You learn to obey even when it's hard. Anybody can obey when it's easy. You grow in trust. Faith is easy when you hardly have to paddle. God wants to change you by revealing himself to you. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. It's one of my favorites. Spurgeon wrote, I am afraid that all the grace that I have gotten out of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on the head of a penny. But the good I have received from my sorrows, pains, griefs, and challenges is altogether incalculable. 
What I've learned when the sun was shining was small compared to the great knowledge of God and the experience of God I have known in the midst of my poverty, my difficulty, my affliction. Remember the fiery furnace? Those three obedient men learned something about God in the fire they otherwise would have never known. His unique presence in the midst of difficulty, his sustaining power, his protecting power. Even Jesus learned obedience, Hebrews 5, 8, through the things which he suffered. He was made perfect, fully fit for his function. Not the removing of sin, but the maturing in his growth as a perfect high priest. Things you will learn about Jesus in the dark difficulty you will never learn in the sunshine of your success. Never. You will know it in the darkest places you have ever been in a way that you had not known to accomplish what he wants for you. And some of you will know those times when he reveals himself to you in an unrivaled way when it's the darkest part of your night. Tony Snow, a journalist who was the press secretary for George W. Bush, was a speechwriter for his father, George Herbert Walker Bush, had a talk show and was a CNN commentator for a while, wrote these words about the benefits of difficulty. The art of being sick, he had cancer, so he's writing out of the difficult days of his battle with his physical health. The art of being sick is not the same as the art of getting well. Some cancer patients recover, some don't, but the ordeal of facing your mortality and feeling your frailty sharpens your perspective about life. This is a born-again man, by the way. You appreciate little things more ferociously. You grasp the mystical power of love. You feel the gravitational pull of faith, and you realize you have received a unique gift, a field of vision others don't have. A field of vision about the power of hope and the limits of fear, a firm set of convictions about what really matters and what does not. Here's what I'd like to say to you today as a family member. God uses hard places for high purposes. To change the way you think about life, your life perspective. And to change your perspective about the life giver. During our journey of illness, my wife uh, early on began a blog. And on, in that blog, as she journeyed with her health challenges and my son's, she wrote one I'll never forget. And it went like this. Lord, don't heal me too quickly. And don't heal me too soon. Let me learn what I need to learn. Let me know what I need to know. Let me know you and the life you give. Don't heal me too quickly. Don't heal me too soon. And here's a life truth for you. 
Hard places are not places to get through. They are great places to learn what only they teach. Don't quit. Look and learn. If you understand, would you say amen? All right, let me give you a couple of more. Number three. Life lesson number three, discipleship lesson. In difficult places, my disciples are prone to not recognize me. I take that from verse 49 of Mark's gospel, chapter 6. It's Jesus, but they don't know it's Jesus. They supposed, verse 49, that it was a ghost. My encouragement to you is this. In your humanity, you are prone to not see what you need to see. I think Jesus would put it this way. You're not prone to see me as I'm walking past, revealing myself in the midst of your difficulty. Disciples tend to miss my presence and my unrivaled capacity when they're traumatized. Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, the two disciples having seen and heard of Jesus being crucified, laid in the grave. The grave's now empty. They're talking about it. They're heading their seven-mile trek from Jerusalem. And Jesus walks with them, and he talks with them, and he eats with them. And their hearts begin to recognize who he is. And the scriptures say, Luke 24, verse 31, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? We didn't know who he was. We didn't recognize him until the end. We, we were walking with him. He was talking with us. He was revealing truth to us. He was revealing himself to us, but we didn't see him until after it was over. Because in trauma, when it's hard, we're inclined to not see what we ought to see. That's why Jesus said, O foolish men, slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have said. Won't you believe the truth? Won't you recognize that I will come to you? Don't, won't you recognize that I watch for you? That I will not leave you nor forsake you? I mean, I ask myself the question, why did they not see him? Why did they not, the disciples here, they thought it was a ghost. Was it because he looked weird? Dressed up like Casper? Why didn't they recognize him? May I offer you a reason? Because he came in a way they didn't expect at a time they didn't expect it. He came in the third to sixth, the the. the the third watch of the night, 3 to 6 a.m., and he came walking on the water. Jesus tends to show up in ways you do not expect and when you don't expect. That's a life lesson. I've been in the ministry. I've been a Christian. God has a unique way of affirming his presence and concern. Look for his presence. Oh, I'm not, asked, I'm not suggesting a Christophany. I'm not suggesting a theophany. I'm talking about God using 
a part of his body to affirm his commitment and present and support of you in your season of difficulty. Unexpected times, look for him, don't miss him. Appointed agents sent by him to encourage your heart, to reveal his grace, to support you. When I was at, uh, in Alabama as a pastor, I had uh, often, I would have, often is overstated, once in a while I would have an athlete from Alabama or Auburn come to speak in our church as an encouragement to our congregation and to our young people. And an offensive lineman that played at Alabama by the name of Milton Talbert come and speak to our church and did a great job defensive lineman sharing his faith and we had good fellowship together and we went out to eat, and he went back to Alabama, and I'll never forget this. A month later, difficult week at the church, cascade of events that were intense and hard. One of those seasons where you're tired, you're weary, and you're going, what do I do now? And on a Thursday evening late, having gotten home from a board meeting and having wrestled with some of those key issues. My phone rings. I pick up my phone, and there's a voice on the other end, and Pastor Harry, it's Milton. I said, hey, Milton, what's up? He said, I was reading God's word, and I know that you're always checking on everybody else, and I just felt prompted to call and check on you. I said, hey, Milton, you know what this is to me? This is God saying, I care. It's God saying, I'm engaged. You're an agent of grace to me to remind me that I'm not alone. God's grace is sufficient because God is present. You see, when it's hard, we're prone to not see what we need to see. My encouragement today is to look harder. All right, turn back to Matthew 14, and we're going to wrap it up with this. This is the parallel passage, and this is the fourth lesson. that I want to offer to you today out of this passage, this defining discipleship, rowing all night, going nowhere lesson. Number four, disciples of mine, by faith, you can do the humanly impossible. By faith, you can do the humanly impossible. Keep your eyes on me. Now, most commentators think Peter was the author of the Gospel of Mark. John Mark was the amanuensis, the secretary, the reporter. Peter doesn't tell this story, this piece of it. Matthew does. Matthew's the only writer of, this, of the Gospels that adds this significant installment, this discipleship lesson. It's about Peter. And I wonder why Peter didn't include it in his gospel when Matthew did. Watch these words, verse 28. After 
Jesus says, verse 27, Mark, Matthew 14, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Same context, included in Matthew's gospel, not in Mark's. Verse 28, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they had gotten into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Not what kind of man is this, but rather you are certainly God's son. Message finally received. But my question to you is, what's this deal with Peter? Here's the deal with Peter. And I, 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 I asked myself, why didn't he report this? And I thought, well, maybe because what Peter did is what we often do. We focus on the moments of sinking rather than the miraculous walking. Maybe he didn't report this because he wasn't proud of this. But here's what I would suggest to you. Has anybody else ever walked on water but Jesus? Peter did. He didn't walk long, but he walked on water. And the lesson for you and I is, is that we, we, you and me, we can learn this lesson that if we will keep our eyes on Jesus and exercise faith in him, following and understanding a confirming call i mean look at what it says in matthew chapter 14 peter said command me to come to you if you're going to walk on water if you're going to do the miraculous you're going to need to have a confirmed calling and an extraordinary desire a passion to do something that others do not do now listen i'm not talking about thrill seeking One of you in here has a brother who, in Birmingham, used to jump off rooftops into bushes. I would call that presumptuous. I would call that reckless. This is not extreme sports. This is God confirming a call to do something extraordinary that others are not doing, to, to come to him in places that others are not coming. This is command obeying. This is not bush jumping, but extraordinary living. And this is a confirmed calling. Lord, do you want me to come? Come. And then there's a compelling conviction about who he is. Do you see what it says in verse 29 after he hears the confirmed call to come? He got out of the boat, verse 28 rather, he says, Lord, if it is you, if you, if it's you, if it's you are, if it's who you, if you are who you say you are, if, if you have faith that he is who he says he is, he can do what he says he can do, if you can believe that he has the capacity, and you're confirmed in your heart that he's called you, and you believe that he is who he says he is, 
You have a passion to do something. He confirms that something. You believe he is who he says he is. Then step out of the boat with a compelling conviction and live by faith and do what humanly is not possible to do. One of the great tragedies of Christianity is we live within the domain of what is only humanly possible. And if there's anything true about this text and the the record of the New Testament, is God is able through his people to do the supernatural. To take you where you otherwise couldn't go. To do with your life what otherwise you couldn't do. Not because of your power, but because of his capacity. And by faith, You step out, having confirmed his calling in your life, and you don't quit, you don't give up, you trust him, and you walk by faith, and you keep your eyes on him, and watch him do with you what otherwise you could never do. God forbid that all we are are members of the body of Christ who think within the realm of what our natural man can consider and not, ex- not imagine what God might want to do if we'll allow him to do it with an unwavering confidence in the one who calls us to do something maybe nobody else has ever done. By faith, you can do the impossible with a confirming calling, with a compelling conviction, and with a consistent confidence that, God, you can do this, and my eyes are on you. I mean, yes, the winds will blow and the storms will rage. The waves are high. Nothing has stopped. The precept for the miraculous in life is the same as the prerequisite to receive that you got a miracle in your life by faith. By believing that he said what he said and he can do what he can do. And you live by faith just like you get saved by faith. If you want to see the miraculous in life, you do it the same way as you receive the miracle of life. You step out in faith. You believe that God's good for what he's promised. Here's a fact. Peter was as dependent on Jesus when he was walking on the water as when he was sinking. Isn't it funny? He lost his faith when he was walking, but when he started sinking, he knew exactly who to depend on. Saving Peter required no more strength than keeping Peter on the water. Fear and faith are the opposite. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, receive anything from God, or do anything miraculous on behalf of God. Faith is spiritual common sense. If God is who he says he is, doubt is irrational. The issue is, is he God? Has he called you? Will you trust him? And will you keep your eyes on him? The circumstances don't matter if God's in the picture. Can you say amen? That's true. Let me close with a life-on-life story. Doing the miraculous may not be obvious. In 1976, I went to Brown University to play college football. I started as a freshman in the Ivy League you can't play varsity as a freshman. They want you to get your academics in order. I started as a freshman wide receiver at Brown. 
I came back my sophomore year, right before practice, with high hopes. The second week of practice, because the guy I was competing against, actually the guys I was competing against were the same age I was, sophomores. So I had high hopes for my football career. Second week of practice, I reached down for a ball delivered low across the middle, and I shattered the end of this ring finger. I don't know if it was as bad as your finger, EJ, but it was bad enough that I couldn't catch a football for three weeks. Well, if you play sports, you know that when you're trying to define a position and you're not practicing, guess what's happening? You're going backwards. Well, by the time it was said and done, I had fallen behind. I couldn't catch up. I was rowing and going nowhere. I was practicing. I wasn't playing, and the forecast was not hopeful. So I decided what any smart athlete would do whose scholarship did not depend on his competing as a football player because your scholarship in the Ivy League is yours whether you play or not. I decided to quit. And before I decided to quit, I called home, talked to my best friend, and I said, Steve, I'm, 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 it's not going anywhere. I'm wasting my time. I know I'm not going to be a professional football player. I need to move on. He said, Harry, let me ask you a question. He asked me to ask you three. Did God call you? Did God create this opportunity for you? Are you playing, second question, for your satisfaction, or are you playing for God's glory? Harry, are you keeping your eyes on the Lord, or are you, and are, will you practice for His glory or only play for His glory? Why do you do what you do? I don't know if you've experienced this, but sometimes when a brother or sister or friend speaks the truth to you, it resonates in such a way you know that the Lord has just spoken to you. So I got it. I heard it. I finished my sophomore year. I practiced for God's glory because I sure didn't get to play for it. I was the guy they brought in when the game was decided. I transferred from Brown in 1978. After my sophomore year, before my junior year, God made it plain that I was he was calling me into ministry. I left Brown because that's not the place you study for the ministry. I went to Liberty. I left Brown to head to the ministry to go to seminary. The year was 1978. Fast forward 22 years. The year 2000. I'm a senior pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, flying to Houston, Texas for a city-reaching conference in Houston, a national gathering. The first evening, sitting around round tables in the conference center at a large hotel, we're networking and ministry sharing. We're going around the table. We don't know each other. We're just introducing ourselves and our ministry. The guy across from me introduces himself. He has a ministry in Baltimore, Maryland, and he said he's a graduate of Harvard University. To which I said, wow. I said, hey, I went to Brown. I never meet anybody in the Ivy League who's in ministry. Great to meet you. We went around the table, got to the guy next to me. The guy sitting next to me looked at me and said, did you play football at Brown? I said, what? All I said was I went to Brown. I did not say I played football at Brown. He said, did you play football at Brown? I said, well, yes, I did. He said, do you know Ron Brown? I said, Ron Brown. He said, yeah, he's a football coach at the University of Nebraska. He coaches uh, wide receivers. And 
my mind's starting to work. It's a long time ago. I'm old. And I said, yeah, but I did know Ron Dunn. But he was a defensive back. He said, no, no, no. He played defensive back at Brown. I said, well, then I know Ron Brown. Why do you ask? He looked at me. He looked at my name tag. And he said, because I think you're in his book. I said, I'm in his book. I might be famous in my own mind, but not in anybody else. <laughs> he said, yeah, I'm reading Ron's biography to my eight-year-old son at night. Ron's the chief spokesman for the FCA in the state of Nebraska. Everybody knows Ron. He speaks all over the country. And I think you're in his book. There's this chapter, Whatever Happened to Harry? And I think it's you. He said, yeah, because there was this guy who never played, who had an influence in Ron's life for Christ. He couldn't figure him out because he would smile even though he didn't play. He was weird. <laughs> and he left Brown to go to seminary. Do you think that's you? <laughs> you ever have goosebumps? I don't know where else that could be. Ron Brown has uh, spoken in my church. Ron Brown has introduced me to his family. Ron Brown is a transformed spokesman for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ron Brown is way better at what I do than I do. And Ron Brown would say, I couldn't figure you out. He, he started, I didn't. He was all Ivy, I wasn't. He played and I didn't. But he said, I couldn't figure you out. He said, you had something I didn't have and I was successful and you weren't. I had to find it. You get it. For me, it was a taste of heaven. I wanted to quit. I wanted to stop rowing. My friend reminded me, do what you do for the right reason. Keep rowing. Listen, here's what I want to say. The miracle that God might be doing in your life and through your life might not be obvious. The miracle may not be walking on water towards the Lord, but walking by faith in a way that influences someone for the Lord. I mean, you know, it's miraculous that a third string plays when he, when the game's decided nobody, reaches a first-team All-Ivy somebody. Now listen, Ron Brown's going to be here Friday. He's going to speak in chapel. He's going to speak to our coaches on Wednesday. He's going to speak for Friday at noon, I mean, and our student-athletes at 2 o'clock. I want you to believe everything that he says out of the Bible and believe nothing that he says about my athletic prowess. <laughs> he will mock me. <laughs> Doing the miraculous may not be obvious, but walking on wa like walking on water. But when God reveals that you've done something for his glory, it is fabulous. Don't quit. Step out. Keep walking, keep rowing, keep trusting. Let God use your life because he can use you in ways you couldn't imagine.
He's God. And He uses people like you and me. We love you. Father, we thank you today for your great glory. I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would use them in a way they couldn't comprehend. I pray, Father, that you would illumine their heart about your capacity, that you would call them to extraordinary faith, that they would live for the right reasons, for the right person, that they would play their sport, they would study their lessons, they would pursue their art for your honor to the end that you might use them like you use every disciple in a miraculous way in a way that only God can, in the way that God does. Teach us lessons, high, high lessons, important lessons in hard places. To that end, I ask it for this family, my family. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.